Awesome. Well, kia ora, everyone. Good evening. It is great to see you all here. Thanks for making it out on this uh, rainy and windy night. It's, the rain has just been wonderful, eh? Um, although this is, doesn't have to do with the sermon, but it's been my little gripe. I cannot wait for summer because I feel like God's been testing my patience because my work week is Sunday to Thursday, and it feels like consistently over winter, the rainy days have always been on Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday's typically been this beautiful, glorious day. I'm stuck in here all day. So I'm a little bit glad you get to join me in here in the rain for once, and hopefully it'll be a sunny day next weekend. Um, hey, look, uh, so yeah, I get the great joy of continuing on uh, our Fire Story series. And uh, as we begin, I've realized um, this week I'm starting to get old. And uh, one of the ways, don't laugh, no, it's a serious issue. This is a, a, a problem within me that I'm working through. Um, no, I've, I've realized I'm starting to get old, and that's because in my car... I have changed a fundamental behavior. Now, my car has always been a wonderful haven of music. So I'm a musician, so it's always the place where I would get in the car and just blast the tunes. Like all the music I really wanted to listen to, I'd listen to at really irresponsible levels in my car driving. But a habit pattern has changed, and I'm realizing I'm getting older because I've stopped listening to music and I've started listening to podcasts which feels super old. I'm no longer listening to the bands. I, I think part of it's because I think all the best music's already been made already, and I don't want to listen to any of the new stuff, and I'm bored of the old albums. So, so I end up listening to these podcasts, which is basically like uh, talk radio, except for better, and with people you actually want to listen to. And so what it is is you can download all these different series. I'm sure most of you are familiar with a pod, what a podcast is. You download it to your phone and listen to what you drive. And there's one in particular that I've really, really been enjoying lately, and I want to share it with you because I think you guys might enjoy it. Um, particularly if you, um, anyone here grown up in a Christian home? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. If you've grown up in a Christian home and have like been like integrated with like Christian pop culture in the 90s and 2000s, this is the podcast for you. It's called Good Christian Fun. And what it is, it's, it's a couple of hosts go back through uh, Christian pop culture and just have a nostalgia hit, and just remember all the great things, all the weird things. Um, and it's really interesting because one of the hosts is still a Christian. The other one, I don't think they are anymore. They've kind of walked away. So it's not like a, a thing made for Christians. It's more just a chance to get anyone in to kind of talk about this weird thing that is Christian pop culture. And it's great. I mean, the first episode I listened to, they did DC Talks album Free at Last. Anyone listen to that one? Oh, so good. Heaven bound. Don't you know I'm heaven-bound? Oh, it's, it was like 90s glory. Um, if you haven't listened to it, it's a great album. So I listened to this album, but one of the things about this uh, podcast that has been so fascinating for me is the guests that they routinely have come on, they, uh, they have an opportunity where they get to share their guestimony. If you like Christian puns, there are like thousands in this podcast. And so the guests come up and share their guestimony and kind of share a bit about their upbringing, their, their background of faith. And there was this common thread for most of the guests that they had come on. Most of them grew up in a, a Christian background. They were either Catholic or some of them were Pentecostals, some of them were Lutheran, some of them had been Methodist. But there's this common thread that the majority of them, not all, but the majority have come from this Christian background. And they grew up in it and they really enjoyed it. But as they kind of got into their teens, early 20s, most of them have ended up walking away from their faith. They would almost all still call themselves spiritual, but they would look back on their faith and be like, ah... It was a nice season, and if you're still into it, good for you, but that's just not really it for me. And as you listen to these podcasts, one of the things that's fascinating is it comes up over and over again, is it's that the culture around Christianity has often ended up pushing them away. Because they sit in church, 
and they listen to the church bands and they listen to the Christian radio stations and they watch the Christian movies. And what happens over time is that they get presented this gospel that is often, um, in media, it's branded as very safe. You know the Christian radio stations or the Christian books because they're called family-friendly. Um, they, they ended up being a part of culture where Christians were more known for what they didn't do and what they didn't like and what they disapproved of than what they did like. And what happens is over time is that this Christian culture ended up almost kind of inoculating them to the gospel. And so they ended up walking away and they're thinking, oh, that was a cool phase, but the story of Jesus, the, the story of the apostles, the story of the Spirit and the Spirit's actions and movements no really longer holds sway over them. And I think it's a danger that all of us face, eh? I mean, how many of us here will know someone with that exact story? They've grown up in a Christian background. They, they knew Jesus at one point, but after a while, they kind of just got, meh. The whole thing felt vanilla. It felt bland and beige, and so it was easier to just walk away and do their own thing because that seemed at least more authentic and more exciting. It's a common uh, threat that I think all of us, if we are Christians, that we face, and I think it's the greatest danger that we face. And last week, I talked about a guy named Doak, who was a Baptist pastor in New Zealand. And I said that Doak, what was fascinating is he provides a window of what like a real on-fire Christian life could look like. So Doak kind of provided a window into what it could be. Tonight, we're looking at someone who takes a sledgehammer to vanilla Christianity, shatters it, steps on it, and moves on in a world that I think most of us today would be attracted slash terrified of. And it's by this guy named Francis of Assisi. And one of the cool things about picking on him is that actually on Thursday, now we Protestants don't actually care about this, but Catholics and uh, Eastern Orthodox as well will have like Saints Day. And actually this past Thursday was Francis's feast day, which is quite a cool little connection where the whole world kind of gathers to remember his story. And I want us to share, look at a little bit of him because I think he can speak to that, to that kind of culture where you're just kind of, the gospel's become a bit, Ugh, and all the culture and the, the trappings and everything around it feel a bit heavy and boring and, and burdensome. And I think through, through Francis, we can begin to see something a little bit fresher. So Francis, obviously, he was born like a thousand years ago. So way, way, way a long time ago, uh, right after the turn in the millennium. And when he was born, it was a really interesting scenario. So Christianity obviously started as this cool grassroots movement with like slaves and, and poor people and Gentiles and Jews coming together. But around 300, uh, 350 AD, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, decided to make Christianity the official state religion. And ever since that point, a movement that was always kind of fringe kind of tipped over and became the establishment, like it became the mainstream. And progressively over the next 700 years, Christianity became more and more associated with power it became more associated with wealth. It became more associated with status. To be a bishop wasn't just to be a leader of a church, but it was to have this really great sense of importance and standing in the community. And right around Francis' time, something new had begun to develop. The, the political climate had led to the first time in hundreds of years, the rise of a middle class. Because it was always the really, really wealthy and the really, really poor. And suddenly you had all these merchants and traders and craftsmen who are able to start using their business and begin to accumulate wealth. And so all of a sudden in the community, there was this fervor for upward mobility. Everybody wanted to get rich because it was now a possibility. You could taste the money in the air. And so everybody was trying to sell stuff, do business, work really, really hard so that they could move up the social ladder. Now, Francis was born into this world. His dad was actually one of these merchants who had made the big bucks selling cloth. 
And so Francis grew up in this really quite a wealthy family, actually. And Francis was a bit of a playboy. As, as he kind of grew up, his parents basically gave him whatever he wanted, and Francis loved it. Like, most weekends, he was down at the pub with all of his mates, drinking till the cows came in, right? And his dad wanted him to be this good, responsible businessman who would sell cloth and carry on the legacy. But for Francis, that always seemed super boring. Like, he just could not be bothered. It seemed too taxing, too long, too arduous. And so Francis instead looked around, and he decided, what do I want to be? And it's, I love it. He looked around, and the thing he wanted to be more than anything is he's like, I want to be a knight, which is like the equivalent of saying, I want to be a Kardashian. Like, it was the most vain position to want. You just wanted to be cool. You wanted to be liked by people. And so Francis decided he was going to go be a knight. And so because he was rich, he goes to the arms people and, and the, the blacksmiths, and he gets them to make like the fanciest armor, like armor that would have been useless in battle. It was jewel encrusted. It had all the, the colors and the shapes and the new, the new styles. And so he had this like swagalicious armor, right, as he went out to go fight. And so eventually there was a battle. And Francis was so stoked because he was going to go out into this battle with all of his good armor, and he was going to win and be the man. Now, fancy it, sometimes party boys aren't the greatest of warriors. And he went out to this battle, and his side got decimated, utterly destroyed. And so many of his friends and countrymen were killed. The only reason Francis was saved is because his clothes were so flash, they were like, this dude is rich, which means some daddy's going to pay money for him. So he ended up becoming a prisoner of war, ended up staying in this foreign city for over a year as the officials negotiated with his father for his release. And what happens is, while Francis is in jail, something really significant happens to him. For someone who's grown up his whole life getting to do whatever he wants when he wants, considering himself invincible because he had the world at his fingertips, he was moving up with everything, he was now suddenly stuck in jail. He had none of his clothes, he had none of his wealth, and he actually became really, really sick. And so for someone who thought he'd never die, he was confronted face-to-face -face with his own mortality. And it's in this jail that God begins to speak to him. He begins to think about, what is my life about? What, is, what, what, what meaning am I going to have on this earth? What, what am I meant to do? What am I meant to be? And suddenly you see something shift within Francis. Eventually his father pays this ransom. Francis gets to go back to his home city of Assisi. And he still goes out and kind of parties with his friends on the weekends, but it's not the same. I mean, he, he still buys drinks for people, but he just, there's no love for it anymore. It's suddenly now seen as really empty, really vain, really meaningless. And so one day, Francis is riding down the road. And he looks over to the side of the road, and there's a leper. Skin's bleeding. He smells, he can smell him, smell him even as he approaches. He's kind of huddled down. And now Francis, normally when he sees someone like this, his immediate reaction is he kind of pulled back inwardly, felt gross. This man is he's dirty, he, he's sick, he smells. He's, nothing about him is redeemable. This person is the worst. And he, 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 re, he reproached himself on the inside and said, oh, I can't. But then something clicked in him. And so... People aren't sure whether it was a hallucination or whether it was a vision by God, but when he looked down at this leper who he was so repulsed by, the leper looked up at him and Francis said he saw the literal face of Jesus sitting by the roadside. And Francis said, what do you do? You can't leave, you can't walk by. 
if this is our Lord, if this is the Jesus here, how can I walk by and do nothing? And so Francis gets off of his horse, takes all the money that he has, puts it in the leper's hands, picks him up, embraces him, and kisses him, which is the craziest thing Francis would have never done. But in doing this, Francis was transformed. Francis walked away saying that his face and his life suddenly felt sweeter having encountered this leper. And Francis said, this is what I'm going to do. And so he started doing that. He started taking care of the poor, the lepers, the needy, wherever they could be found. He, there was an old abandoned church that he said, oh, this is terrible. So he went in and he started just slowly, little by little, repairing it. And when you start serving needs, more needs arise. And so Francis needed to keep on giving. So he reaches into daddy's bank account, grabs a whole bunch of fine cloth and linen, goes out and sells it, and then gives all the money to the poor and to the church. Now, you can imagine Daddy Banks was not super happy with Francis about this. In fact, he was furious. He was so angry, Francis had to run into hiding, and he lived in a cave by that church he was restoring for months. It wasn't until the local bishop found him in the cave that said, Francis, you got to come back and deal with this. You, got, you have got to own up to this. And so they bring Francis back. He is he smells awful because he's been living in a cave. He hasn't eaten hardly anything. He's sick. He's feverish. And as he comes into town, the whole town is making fun of him. They are throwing food. They're throwing stones at him, calling him this fool. And so Francis kind of hobbles into the town, and his dad, furious, comes in to meet him. And in the town square, there's this sort of trial. See, the father is demanding justice. His son stole from me and gave it to a useless cause. Something needs to be done. And so the bishop told Francis all these things, and Francis listened. And Francis said, you know what? You're right. The money that I gave away wasn't mine to give. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. And you think it would have ended there. Francis would have repented. They would have gone back to a good, normal life, and everyone kind of turned away. But Francis said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not finished. You're right. That, that money that I gave you, that I gave away, wasn't mine the reputation that I've been living off of, Father, that also, that also belongs to you. Father, the friendships and the networks that I have, those also have actually have come from you as well, so those, those don't belong to me. Father, even, even these clothes that I have on, you gave to me. You've paid for these. They, they don't belong to me either. And so little by little, Francis begins to take off his shirt. He takes off his hat, takes off his shoes, takes off his pants, takes off everything, until he is naked as the day he was born, folds it all up, walks over to his father, puts it on the floor and says, there you are, dad. Everything that you've given to me, I give back to you. And then he turns, nude as all day, to the whole crowd and to the bishops and says, look, I just want it to be known. I have but one father and I have but one family and that is my father in heaven. And from that moment, Francis gleefully walked on, super nude. Now, you're going to notice throughout the series tonight in the talk, nudity is going to become a trend in Francis' life, which makes uh, him quite an exciting saint to, to look at. <laughs> Unintentional. Anyway, and so began this journey in Francis that he began to, everything that the world was in love with, he flipped. You wanted status. Francis went low. You wanted wealth. Francis embraced 
poverty, and he began to do everything really differently. And so there are a few things from Francis's life that I think are really helpful for us. The first one is this. After he, he walked away from his father, uh, someone had pity on him and gave him some clothes, and he went back to that church that he'd been restoring. And while he was in there, he was praying, and again, one day, God spoke to him and said to him, Francis, rebuild my church, because can't you see that it's falling down around you. Now, for us, this is a really fascinating one because in our culture, the church is very much falling out of favor. It's very much kind of not what it used to be. By every single measure, uh, the church in the Western world is in decline. Every, pretty much every denomination without fail, we're either plateauing or we are on the way down. Our glory days of the 1800s where people, you know, here in New Zealand, back in the 1800s, if a pastor preached a sermon, the local newspaper would report on it and put it in the Times so everyone else could read. That does not happen anymore. And if you've read many of the, the blogs, or it often shows up on Facebook of, uh, particularly one of the worst ones is 33 reasons why the church isn't reaching millennials, uh, 12 reasons why the church is losing people, uh, 18 reasons why the church needs to get its act together. It's a, a common phrase, and it's really easy for us to look at the church and be like, oh, this is the worst. <laughs> you know, and, and particularly a, a lot with uh, millennials, uh, who hate labels. They would hate to label themselves as Christians, but they're happy with millennials, which is an odd... Anyway, um, but often the, the refrain that people of a younger demographic will say is, yes, I'm very spiritual. I'm very, very passionate about my faith, but I, I just wouldn't say I affiliate with one church. I really like to be a part of a lot of different churches, and I like to kind of go around and do my thing. So there's this very kind of non-committal approach to Christianity and faith, and I get it. Like, I, I really get it. Uh, having grown up in church my whole life, I understand how frustrating the church can be at times. You know, you always want it to be so much more, and then you get to church, and it's about being polite and having tea and coffee and not cursing and not doing anything too controversial because then someone's going to have a really conversation with you, and then you're going to have got that conversation with someone else, and it becomes this thing, and it's just not worth it. And then you go online, and the church, you know, every time the news seems to interview some Christian, they always find the craziest person. Like, always, it's some nut job who's like, oh, the world's going to end. And you're like, oh, come on. Like, it, it can be really frustrating to deal with the church. And it can be easier to just be like, look, I'm just going to do my own thing. Me and Jesus, that's what we're about. And it could have been so easy for Francis to do the same thing. Because Francis was, I mean, he was crazy, but people were drawn to him. In fact, as he went out and preached, he had this huge movement of young people who were just so attracted to someone who lived so counterculturally that all these people started flocking to him. And it would have been so easy for him to say, cool, I'm just going to do my own thing. This is me now. Stuff you, church. But he didn't. As he saw, he began to develop this following. He took it really seriously and said, look, I can't do this without the blessing of the church because God has called me to repair his church. And so Francis takes his pilgrimage down to Rome. So he can meet with the Pope himself, explain what he's trying to do. Francis is trying to start a new monastic order that's committed to poverty, um, preaching the gospel, and uh, living in celibacy with one another. And he has these crazy ideas, and he tells the Pope. And the Pope looks at this stinky guy in this habit's robe, and he's like, you're insane. And so the Pope says to Francis, look, if you're so passionate about preaching and spreading the gospel, just go outside and preach to the pigs, which is kind of like, just get out of here. I can't be bothered. Francis goes out and preaches to the pigs. I'm not even kidding you. He literally goes out, and there's records of him 
preaching to the pigs, telling them that they are God's good creation, that God has put them on this earth for a purpose, to grow, to multiply, to sustain the needs of the people, and that they are integral to God's Trinitarian view of what creation could be. He does this big sermon to the pigs and walks back into the Pope, saying, okay, I did that. Now, give me... And the Pope's kind of like gobsmacked because Francis comes in covered in mud, pig poo, and everyone's looking at him like, I didn't think he'd come back either. But he's there. And so the Pope says, let me sleep on it. And that's what the Pope does. He, has, he, has, he, has, he wants to sleep that night. And that night he has this dream. And in the dream, he sees the cathedral that he lives in falling down in ruins. And the only thing that is holding this cathedral up is Francis and a bunch of young people dressed like him. And he wakes up the next morning and he says, Francis, go repair this church. And he does that. He goes out and he starts calling people back. He has no new doctrines. I mean, Francis was never formally educated. He was never even ordained as a priest. He just goes out and shares the simple message of the gospel. He loves the poor. And uh, one of the fascinating things is that at this time, all the church services were done in Latin and they had to be done by a priest in a cathedral. Francis grabs his followers and says, look, they're going to do that, which is great. And we're going to support them by going out into the fields and preaching them in their native language. Because heaps of people would go to church and wouldn't have a clue what anyone's saying. They just kind of nod and hope it's going to be okay. But Francis preaches to people in a language that they can understand. He started all these different orders. Eventually, he garnered thousands and thousands of people to his cause. He had people in the first order of the Franciscan monks, and those were those who, like Francis, lived in poverty, lived in celibacy, and begged for alms for the poor and preached the gospel wherever they went. They had the second order, which was revolutionary in that he set up an order for women to do the same. Now, this was crazy. No one would have set up an order like this for women to embrace these same vows. Francis set that up. There was even a third order for those who couldn't commit to celibacy or policy. They were called the order of the repentant few. And they joined in in the same thing. Thousands of people came and the church blossomed because someone was willing to commit not to what the church is, but to what the church could be. And that's what we always have to remember. I know that the church is often really can seem dull and lifeless. But we're not here because of what the church is right now. We're here of what the church could be, this revolutionary force that is literally changing society because that's what it became through Francis. The next thing Francis did is he followed Jesus radically. There's this, um, if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, there's this section in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. It's where Jesus laid down this revolutionary way of living and being. The problem is when we read that now, it's really easy to spiritualize everything Jesus said. Like, blessed are the poor. Now that, you know, I guess poor is kind of a metaphorical thing where if you're feeling down on the day, then God blesses those people. Or, you know, do good to those who hate you. Yeah, I mean, we should do good to those who hate you, but I mean, they still need to deserve justice. So we'll make sure the courts come down hard on them and we don't need to forgive them. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inward heart thing or, you know. Don't worry about tomorrow because God's going to take care of your needs today. Well, yeah, we'll do that. But, you know, I'm also kind of worried about tomorrow. So God, God was kind of being metaphorical on that. It's really easy for us to spiritualize Jesus' language. Francis didn't. He took the Sermon on the Mount and said, look, Jesus said it. He means it. Let's live like it. And so he lived in this crazy form of life. He stood for the poor when Jesus said, blessed are the poor Francis took it literally. And so his brothers, what they would do is they'd spend all day 
uh, preaching and working and begging. And what they had gained in money that day, they would then go and give and deliver to all the poor, everything that they had earned. And then they would go back to where they were staying and believe that God would provide for them. And say, look, if God provides for us food today, then God is great and gracious. And if we have no food for today, then God is giving us a great opportunity to fast and he will do a great work within us. It was crazy. When God said, love your enemies, he took it literally. Now at this time, the Crusades were happening. And if you're familiar with the Crusades, it was a terrible sequence in church history where we went and kind of imparted our way and slaughtered thousands and thousands of people, assuming that if we kill infidels, that'll be our way to heaven. Francis read the Sermon on the Mount and said, no, we can't do that. And so Francis, with a couple of monks, goes to the front in Egypt where there's this big siege on the city where the Christians are trying to take it for God. And Francis goes to the cardinal who's leading the charge and says, stop. Like, we can't do this. We can't just kill people. Take any peace terms that you can find and let's learn how to live with one another. And the cardinal says, no, God has given it to us to destroy these people. And so Francis, knowing he's not going to get anywhere with his own cardinal, then grabs one other monk and says, well, let's go talk to the other guys. And so they do. And everyone's kind of like, you got the front lines on either side. Francis, dressed in like this nasty monk's habit, and someone else, they just parade out into the battlefield. They leave their side, and they just start singing songs. Just start, just start singing, as you do in a war field. And they start making their way up to this occupied city. And all the archers and stone throwers and the hot oil people were all standing there ready to attack whatever weird thing this was. But they just saw two poor guys singing songs coming up. And they were so intrigued and so confused that they just opened up their doors. And Francis and this other monk just waltz right in. Like they waltz into this enemy-occupied city. And once they get in there, they go and they say, we need to talk to your leader. And people are like, Okay, I mean, didn't realize you could just walk in and talk to him. So they bring them to the commander of the city, and Francis starts preaching the gospel to him, telling him about Jesus, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, how that means that we cannot live with enmity between two people because all men and women are our brothers and sisters now, regardless of how different or much we disagree, we are unified in Christ. He preaches all this, and the sultan's just, he's so confused, like, what is going on? There's a whole army of Christians ready to kill him. And then here's this crazy dude who walks in trying to convert him. And the sultan was so moved because he's like, something must be true about this religion that someone would risk his own life, walk through enemy lines just to care for my soul. And so when Francis left, the sultan said, Francis, please, please, please pray for me. Pray that God would reveal which one of our ways of living is most true and most just that I might know and love him? It's crazy. But it's so refreshing to see someone actually take it seriously in, in, a, in a Christianity that's often branded safe for the whole family. It makes no sense. No part of Christianity was ever safe for the whole family. Throughout history, whenever someone's chosen to follow Jesus, it's actually meant you're probably going to lose a lot. You're probably going to be ostracized. You might lose members of your family. You're probably going to lose some status. You're probably going to lose some wealth because God's going to ask you to care for people you don't really like caring for. He's going to ask you to forgive people you don't really like forgiving. He's asking you to give money, money that you really don't want to give to people that you don't really like. This was all part of Jesus's call. And so we brand Christianity as safe and nice and vanilla, but it's never been that. 
And when you see Francis living that radically, it gives you hope for what could be, eh? Finally, the thing that I love most about Francis is that he used art and these crazy expressions to do this. And one of them was often getting naked. Now, stay with me because I know this is weird. But he, he did it all the time. So what would often happen is that when Francis was going around, people would often come and ask him for prayer and ask him for help. And so Francis, having whatever he had in his pockets to whoever asked, he would give. He would give. He would give. Until he had nothing left in his pockets to give, and then someone else would come and ask him for something. And so he looks around, and he's like, well, I have nothing left. So he'd strip off his robe, give his clothes to the poor, and then just walk on his merry way. Like just going, and it happened so often, and they found him naked so often that the other monks ended up bringing a spare habit for when Francis ended up giving his away. But what's so powerful about this wasn't, it was what it communicated, his willingness to literally take the clothes off his back to love his neighbor communicated something about the love of Christ for that person. Or uh, another thing that I really liked was Francis, he, um, he wasn't perfect, and there are records where, because he was a celibate dude, and so there were some mornings when he woke up with urges, right? With, with stirrings that he felt uncomfortable with as a celibate man, and so he would pray because he was frisky, that God would take away his friskiness because he didn't know what to do with it. And so he's praying like this, he's praying like this, and sometimes there are reports of when he'd feel so overcome that he might be tempted to sin, he would again take off his habit in the middle of winter, run outside, and roll around in the snow to try and like cool off his carnal pleasures, right? And again, what did that, it wasn't just the, the, the act, but it also communicated so much to his brother's and sisters, well, not the sisters, because hopefully they weren't watching that moment, but his brothers, about the seriousness, the seriousness with which he took his call of obedience to Christ. The, the other, some fascinating things, he was a great poet. He wrote this amazing song called the Ode to Brother, Brother Sun. Brother Sun, Brother Moon, he, 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 he viewed all of creation as part of God's plan, so he had this song where we, we integrate them as part of our praises and offerings to God. Or another fascinating thing was Francis was probably the originator of the nativity scene at Christmas. You know, the, the cute moment where you have like donkeys and, you know, some little girl has to play Mary and some poor baby gets dragged in as baby Jesus and they cry the whole time and Mary's feeling awkward because she's holding a crying baby. That whole scene, that was Francis because he wanted to communicate how crazy it was that the king of the universe was born in a manger when everybody was used to these huge cathedrals God chose something homely, and so he started bringing nativity scenes to bring animals into the holy cathedral to communicate about God's choices. Or my favorite thing, one of my favorite stories is that um, there was one night, because they often fasted and prayed, there was one night in the middle of the night where Francis is praying, and he hears someone cry out, I'm dying! And Francis responded, why are you dying? And the person says, I'm dying of hunger. And so Francis gets up from his bed, goes and finds this other monk who's been fasting so much, he's just in utter pain. He's so hungry. He's so tired. He doesn't think he's going to make it through the night. And Francis says, this is ridiculous. We got to get some food into you. And so he gets the man out. But he recognizes that this man's going to have to break a fast in order to eat the food, which could be quite a shameful thing in a community that's taking the gospel very, very seriously. So what Francis does is he goes and he wakes up every single other monk staying with them. This is in the middle of the night. Gets them all up, 
sits them all at the table, puts food in front of everyone and says, look, brothers, we're all going to eat tonight because our brother needs food and it's not good of us to sleep while he has to eat in shame over the fast that he has broken. So we will all do this together. Like how much did that communicate to everyone what was there, the importance of us journeying together, the, the way what it means to follow Christ as a community and as a family? Now, I'm a big believer in um, God meeting us in our plotting. You know, God can meet us in our everyday. God meets us in the normal things of life as we just kind of go on our journey. And that's very true. But there's something about Francis that reminds us sometimes we need to do something a little bit weird. Sometimes we need to not look like everybody else. Like, we can't just expect to go through the same motions every single week, doing the same thing that everybody else does, and somehow expect that God's going to do something radical within our lives. God will call us to step out, to be different, to look different, to act different, and to do that intentionally, saying to the whole world, look, there's something different about this God that we follow. And what I love is I know it's terrifying for a lot of us to do that. It is genuinely a scary, scary thing to do. But Francis, knowing these, said this to other people who would have asked him the same thing. Francis said, what do you have to fear? Nothing. Whom do you have to fear? No one. Why? Because whoever has joined forces with God obtains three great privileges. Omnipotence without power, intoxication without wine, and life without death. For what could you do to a man who owns nothing? And you can't starve a fasting man, and you can't steal from someone who has no money, and you can't ruin someone who hates prestige. Francis knew that when you gave your life to God, you died. You took up a cross, knowing that it was going to bring you pain, shame, difficulty, and burden. But Francis knew when you take up that cross, you actually find life. Because all the pressures that weigh in, thinking, what are people going to think? What are people going to do? Look, you're already weird because you're wearing a crucifix. What are they going to do to you? But what you've gained is so much bigger than what you've lost. See, what I love about Francis is that he destroys our perceptions of a boring faith. He shatters our ideals of this cookie-cutter, vanilla, safe, boring Christianity. Because when God calls us to follow him, he calls us to lay down everything. And as we lay down our hopes, our dreams, our expectations, our, our expectation for wealth, our expectation for, for power, for pride, for, for acclaim from our coworkers, for our family, when we lay down all these expectations and say, no, Jesus, you are enough for me. Jesus, your call, your life, your love is enough to satisfy my every need. And when we say that, and when we mean it, then we have gained everything. Because no matter what we lose, it doesn't matter because we've gained something so much greater. Now, there are those of you here that are probably struggling, in a sense, with Christian pop culture. What you've seen from week to week, what you've seen from day to day, what you've experienced in church, there's this, this drive within you that says, this is, ugh, this is not enough. Can I encourage you? There is more. There is so much more. Because when one person, when Francis took a hold of the gospel, 
took a hold of Jesus' call and lived it out, it literally changed the church. It changed how faith worked, how we understood the gospel, how we understood Jesus, and it changed the scenario. And the Franciscan monks still go today. You can still find them meeting, praying, committing themselves to serving the poor and the needy. He started a movement that's still going on a thousand years later simply because he committed to following Jesus. As we finish tonight, I wonder if we can finish with a prayer that Francis wrote. And as we pray it, I want us to pray it together. We'll just read it out together. If this is you and you sense that there's a need for more, let these words sink in. Let this desire, this this perception, this, this window that Francis opens up, let it begin to sink in. Maybe God is calling you to more than what you're currently at. Maybe you've been coasting in faith. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've viewed Christianity as a self-help program by which you can develop yourself and get a little bit better. Jesus doesn't want you to just become all that you can be. Jesus wants you to lay down everything to follow him. A willingness to let go of those expectations that you're going to make it to the top of the corporate ladder. Because following Jesus, it might not work out that way. Lay down your expectations that you're always going to have a huge bank account because if you follow Jesus, it, it might not always work out that way. Now, it might. God might use you that way, but that's not part of the deal. We give up everything to follow that man. And the promise of the gospel is that it is worth it. And what we find in him is so much greater than anything we can find anywhere else. Because he is King Jesus. So can we stand and read Francis' prayer together? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen.